what this new administration is going to do is stick very closely to what they consider to be America's interests. And that ought to make policymakers in London nervous. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like Grandma and Grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary, and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners, and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show, and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. Joe Biden's election as the 46th president of the United States has countries all over the world reassessing their relationship with Washington. What's it going to mean that there's now a new administration and new policies? That's especially true in London, where the country is approaching a really historic moment in its talks with the European Union over Brexit, and where Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, had invested an awful lot of political capital in his personal relationship with Donald Trump. There's a very long history in Britain of insecurity about its relationship with the United States and and a desire for kind of public soothing and praise from the Americans. This is something that Trump especially gave to Johnson's government. But Biden's team are making much more negative noises about Boris and their relationship with Britain. So Joe Biden has described Boris as a physical and emotional clone of Donald Trump, the man that Biden just beat in this election. Tommy Vitor, a former spokesperson for Barack Obama, called Boris, Boris a shape-shifting creep and added, we will never forget your racist comments about Obama and slavish devotion to Trump. That bit about racist comments, by the way, is a reference to when Boris Johnson suggested that Barack Obama's opposition to Brexit was based on his ancestral dislike of Britain due to Obama's Kenyan heritage. And while Vitor isn't expected to serve in the Biden administration, he is a very influential voice among grassroots Democrats, and he's voicing a scepticism that many feel towards a prime minister who's really fashioned his own political project as being similar to that of Donald Trump. The Biden administration has also made some initial noises about Britain that ought to give London pause. So Biden has said that the prospect of any future trade deal between the US and the UK, and this is something that British politicians, especially those who backed Brexit, are very keen on. Well, he said that this trade deal relies on Britain respecting the Good Friday Agreement. And what that basically means is that there can be no hard border on the island of Ireland between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Now, the British government quite famously recently and illegally rode back from its commitment under the withdrawal agreement with the European Union on this point, and Biden raised it in his very first call with Boris Johnson. 
So all of this has led to um, some nervousness in London, particularly in the British government and those who are very committed to the project of Brexit. The British tabloids have been doing their thing, with many of them suggesting that Joe Biden is somehow anti-British. Uh, Nigel Farage has said that Biden hates the UK as well. So what, what I want to do in this episode is to think a little bit about the US-UK relationship. What is this thing that we often call the special relationship? How important is it really to America? And how is it affected by Brexit and the changing relationship between Britain and Europe that we're going to see in the wake of Brexit? So let's start with a little history. The idea of a special relationship between the UK and the US is only as old as World War II. That's about as old as Joe Biden. Now sure, Joe Biden is pretty old, but in considered alongside the whole span of American history, you know, it's not, so, not too long at all. It's only about 70 years or so. For most of America's history, the US and the UK have had a much, much more complicated relationship, often also a hostile relationship. The War of Independence, of course, was fought against Britain, so America won its sovereignty and independence by shedding British blood. After the American Revolution, Britain remained the world's foremost superpower, and the United States was frequently kind of chafing against Britain, coming into conflict with it as it tried to assert its own interests. In 1812, America invaded Canada, set off a war which ended up with Britain invading the United States and then burning down the White House. You then had the American Civil War, in which many, uh, many elites in Britain, many British newspapers, supported the, the cause of the Confederacy in the American Civil War. They were hoping to see a breakup of the United States. Then you can fast forward a little bit further, and even in the early 20th century, Britain and the US were competing for naval supremacy and later over economic policy. So this idea that we have now that there should be a kind of mutually beneficial synergistic relationship between the US and the UK is really quite unusual. And it developed in a very particular set of historical circumstances, and we shouldn't be surprised to see that it gets called into question as those circumstances change. Now, the story that you will usually hear about the origins of the special relationship is that it got its start in World War II. So basically, the shared sacrifice that Britain and America made in that war set the stage for their cooperation in the decades afterwards to defend civilization and uphold a liberal world order. If you think about this story for a minute, then some kind of cracks start to appear in it. So I think like we also know that America and the Soviet Union were very close allies during the war. They fought against Nazi Germany together. But in the aftermath of the war, America and Soviet Union went in completely opposite directions. They, they weren't allies at all. They couldn't have been further apart. What it was that allowed the US and the UK to keep this close relationship after the war, as, you know, as the world entered this new era of the Cold War, was that the UK was able to offer a set of assets and capabilities to the US that really helped America as it stepped into this new role of a global superpower after World War II. And the reason that Britain was able to offer this help to the United States was because it was a declining superpower. It had an empire that straddled the world. It had diplomatic connections and knowledge of pretty much every region of the world. It had military bases scattered everywhere. It had intelligence networks, intelligence assets scattered all over the world. 
it continued to exercise sovereignty into the post-war era. You know, even as it lost its empire, it held on to places like Diego Garcia, like Hong Kong, like Malaysia for a period. And this gave the US a foothold in regions of the world that the Americans were not very familiar with and didn't have their own pre-existing infrastructure. This is where you see the development of one of the big cliches that people in Britain always like to use about the special relationship, which is basically to say that the Americans are naive, they don't understand how power politics works, and they need to be tutored by the wise, more experienced British. So this role as kind of educator and advisor is something that we've seen in the British-American relationship, you know, going back as far as Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt and forward to Blair and Bush, for instance, who I think really embodied, in, in Britain, I mean, Blair really embodied this vision that he is kind of the wise, worldly experienced European could tutor Bush and advise Bush in the usage of, of global power. What a lot of this story misses is that there's a kind of innocence that it portrays in the passage of global power from the UK to the US. It ignores the fact that the decline of Britain's empire actually owed a great deal to American policy choices in the post-war period. So the conditions that America placed on giving financial and military aid to Britain as part of World War II played actually a big part themselves in the decline of Britain and the decline of the British Empire. But, you know, the, that, that, that's kind of forgotten, particularly in Britain. It's, it's kind of an embarrassing story for Britain. So the UK has always continued to nurture this idea that, that, you know, it's almost an equal partner in this relationship with the US. But really, ever since the immediate post-war period, that's become less and less true with each passing decade, as America has undisputably earned a great deal of experience itself in exercising world power, however unwisely it may do so. It no longer, you know, people in Washington no longer feel that they need to listen to British advice. So, you know, we're left with these concrete assets which the UK offers to the US its intelligence networks, its occasional military support, for instance. We often pay so much attention to the personal chemistry that exists between leaders, between presidents and prime ministers, and the mood music in the relationship. But, you know, we can forget that if you want to understand long-term trends in relations between the UK and the US, then you absolutely have to look at these fundamentals, the assets that Britain has, that it offers the US, that make that relationship worthwhile from Washington's point of view. Is the UK able to offer the US assets which it cannot find anywhere else? And is the value of those assets increasing? Or, as seems to be the case right now, is the value decreasing? You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. reasons we get easily distracted from this point about the fundamentals of the relationship is that the special relationship is actually rarely discussed in these exact terms. So the left wing in both Britain and the US tends to be skeptical of the special relationship to downplay its importance. 
In the UK, the left wing of the Labour Party has always been very suspicious of this alliance with the United States, which it sees as kind of an aggressive, militaristic, imperialist power. You know, they think that the special relationship basically means that Britain gets involved in America's wars. And the, the, the Iraq war was a really big deal in this regard, really, really turned many, many grassroots left-wing activists and voters against the idea of the American alliance. You can draw a straight line from the left's horror over the war in Iraq to the election of Jeremy Corbyn, who'd called for the end of NATO as leader of the Labour Party. And in the US, you know, that there's been kind of the mirror image of this where the left tends to be very suspicious of the way that recent British leaders have gone along with Republican presidents who Democrats consider to be abhorrent. So we saw this first with Blair and Bush and now also with Johnson and Trump. Barack Obama has this line in one of his books which sums up this perspective really well, I think. So in the book, he's complaining about the Bush administration's unilateralism, its disrespect for international institutions as when it invaded Iraq. And he suggests that rather than seeking a true multilateral solution through the United Nations, Bush just, quote, rounded up Togo and Britain and then claimed to represent the broader international community. Now, this is a pretty strong statement, you know, suggesting at the same time that the UK offers this slavish devotion to the US, certainly not the sort of devotion that, that deserves respect. And also at the same time, comparing Britain in its importance to a tiny nation in West Africa. This is the sort of thing that really makes Conservative MPs, particularly Brexit supporters, mad. But they themselves are guilty of not thinking clearly about the special relationship either. So the sort of Tory MP who considers himself the most hard-headed and unsentimental about foreign affairs, you know, the sort of guy who thinks everyone else is naive and idealistic and only he understands how power politics really works, this is exactly the same sort of, of conservative thinker or politician who you will find getting the most teary-eyed and flowery and sentimental when it comes to talking about the US-UK relationship. Just as an example of this, last week was Thanksgiving, which I enjoyed at home with my American wife and my Anglo-American daughter. We've got our own little special relationship going on there. But I, I took, a, um, took a break that day and, and logged onto Twitter, and I saw that Daniel Hanan, the very pro-Brexit, hardline, conservative politician, had tweeted out this picture which really struck me. So it was a picture of John Bull and Uncle Sam. So these symbolic representations of Britain and the United States respectively. And they were staring into each other's eyes with what I can only describe as kind of loving devotion. And there was a quote in the background which read, a union in the interest of humanity, civilization and freedom. You know, a big part of, of this kind of romantic rhetoric about the relationship, in Britain at least, is this really kind of militant national pride in seeing the UK as somehow the equal of the US in world affairs, and asserting that they share a kind of historic civilizational mission to advance the cause of freedom around the world. What this discourse really does, and, and this discourse is, is what dominates right-wing thinking about the US-UK relationship in Britain, what it does is that it really kind of precludes or avoids any actual conversation about what are the fundamental interests for both countries that lay at the heart of this relationship. Avoiding that conversation is one way of making very, very big mistakes doing things in British policy that reduce Britain's usefulness to the United States. 
So let's consider the fundamental planks of that usefulness and how they're affected by Britain's changing relationship with the European Union. Let's start with economics. So a lot's been said about the possibility of a US-UK trade deal and the Brexit faction in London have been pushing really hard to portray this as an alternative to Britain's relationship with the European Union. But this is really a pretty big misrepresentation of what's at stake in uh, any potential trade deal. So due to their historic ties, the British and American economies are already incredibly closely integrated. They're a big source of trade and investment for one another. You know, this dates back as far as the American Revolution. If you consider that, you know, America used to be a colony of Britain, British business people have always known America pretty well and vice versa. So because of this already very close level of economic cooperation that exists, there really isn't that much more that a trade deal can accomplish because trading relations between the two countries are already very close and very open. The UK government itself has calculated that a trade deal with the US would be worth just 0.14% to British GDP over the long term, and when you consider that Brexit is expected to knock something like 4 or 6% of the British economy over the same period, you can see that this idea of an American deal as an economic project to replace Europe really doesn't make a lot of sense. And what it is instead is a political project designed to tie the US and the UK more closely together. So this is really tied up in this, you know, this uh, idea that we hear from London a lot of global Britain. The idea that Britain doesn't need a close relationship with the European Union because it can have close relationships with other countries and, you know, especially other powerful countries around the world. And, you know, all this talk about a trade deal is really much more about trying to portray the American connection as an alternative to Europe than it is actually about economics. The problem with this is that America's desire to be close to the UK depends on a lot of other factors, and it isn't really much affected by a trade deal. And in fact, it's very questionable, you know, the, the, to think that any such deal could be ratified by the US Congress at the moment, given that opposition to trade deals has really been on the rise in the US over the past few years. So, you know, what Joe Biden has said recently about um, the, the way in which the Good Friday Agreement might get in the way of Britain and the US striking a trade deal, if, if Britain breaks the Good Friday Agreement, that is, that's something that had already been said by Democrats in Congress. And Congress has a really big role to play in uh, in the in the ratification rather of of trade deals. So it was always one of the most illogical things about Brexit to suggest that somehow Britain's economic life raft was going to be to strike a trade deal with America at a moment when trade deals in general are so out of favor among American policymakers and American politicians. And particularly to say that, you know, it was Donald Trump, this president who's famously opposed to trade deals and famously opposed to giving away good deals to other countries. You know, so much of his political identity was about actually out-negotiating, you know, out-competing, beating other countries. So the idea that, you know, Britain's lifeline depended on this trade deal with America was always really, really illogical. And under Biden, the prospects of a trade deal aren't really that much better. And even if, you know, the two countries do come to an agreement, it's likely to be very narrow and not particularly consequential for either of their economies. 
What Washington does really care about in its relationship with Britain are particular assets that Britain can bring to the table, particularly assets that help the US with power projection and intelligence around the world. The UK has one of the best and the most experienced intelligence services in the world, and the US really values its intelligence sharing relationship with the UK, not just bilaterally, but also through what's called the Five Eyes Agreement, which also includes Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And you can see here how it's Britain's legacy of empire and the, you know, the connections it has to countries in different parts of the world that really were the foundation of this intelligence sharing relationship. And this relationship long predates uh, Britain's involvement with the, the project of European integration, and, you know, it will outlast it. So that's not going anywhere. But it's also not a source of particular leverage to Britain, because London also benefits so enormously from America sharing its secrets with it. So this is a really two-way relationship, and it, it will continue you know, regardless of the way that particular British uh, prime ministers and American presidents feel about one another, but it's also not somewhere where there's room for real growth in the relationship or change in the relationship. And it's just going to continue pretty much as it has before. Something that has kind of waxed and waned over the course of Anglo-American relations in the post-war era has been joint engagement in military operations. So, you know, Britain's willingness and capabilities to become involved in America's wars is an asset that has been very highly valued in Washington, even if at times it's been disparaged, as with Barack Obama's comments about Britain and Togo, which I talked about earlier. But a few things are changing here as well. So the first is that, you know, Brexit is inevitably going to put downward pressure on UK defence spending and its willingness to engage in foreign conflicts. So that 4 to 6 percent of GDP hit that Brexit is going to impose on the British economy will have, you know, real long-term consequences for Britain's ability to maintain the sort of military that it had 10 or 20 years ago. And, the, you know, the willingness of Britain to engage in these military operations with the US has also been increasingly in doubt, you know, after the Iraq war, you know, didn't go very well. The Libyan intervention is now something that many policymakers look back on with regret. And, you know, this increased unwillingness given these, uh, you know, the way that some of these operations turned out was really evident when the House of Commons voted against military action uh, against Syria during the Obama administration. So the willingness of Britain to go along with the US has also been in doubt recently. And policymakers in Washington have, have actually sometimes talked in recent years about France replacing Britain as their partner of choice, particularly as France has committed thousands of troops to fight against Islamist groups in West Africa. As Brexit puts downward pressure on British finances, as it means that Britain becomes more and more absorbed with its own internal problems, the willingness to engage in military operations with Washington is also increasingly going to be in question. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow.
There's another reason as well that policymakers in the US are starting to favour France and Berlin more than London, and that's because of the diplomatic consequences of Brexit. Many of the problems confronting the United States today in its foreign policy, things like stabilising the global economy, um, a confrontation with China over trade, uh, right through to you know preventing future pandemics, which the Biden administration uh, has announced will, will be a, a big part of its policy, these require the European Union much more than they require the UK. And you only have to look at the relative size of the two economies to see why. So the EU represents an economy of about $18.8 trillion. It's the second largest economy in the world after the US, whereas the UK economy is just $2.83 trillion. And diplomatically, the majority of member states of NATO are also members of the European Union. Increasingly, economic and diplomatic power lies much more in Europe than it does in London. And while Britain used to be a voice which could sometimes be relied upon to push the US perspective inside the EU and inside NATO and to, you know, help win over European countries to the American point of view, now Britain's outside of the EU, it's going to find itself increasingly isolated from European capitals, and it's not going to be able to play this role that it used to play. Take relations with China as an example. So there's a consensus pretty much in Washington that while the time has come to confront China, the Trump administration screwed up pretty badly by not trying to create a united front with other parts of the world, particularly Europeans, to put pressure on China together. So in the early days of his administration, Trump launched a trade war on Europe and China simultaneously. Um, he kind of, you know, rolled back the, this this attempt with a trade war at Europe pretty quickly when he saw how badly this was working out. But he really kind of lost the opportunity to try to um, get American allies on his side to take on China in this kind of economic competition that was so central to what he wanted to accomplish. Now, the Biden administration is likely to continue this um, policy of trying to economically contain China, probably going to keep up the trade war, but they're going to try to put together an international coalition, including the Europeans, to do this. And to Biden, you know, the Biden administration's attempt to put together this coalition, the European Union is just so much more important than Britain is, and Britain outside the European Union is even less important to this, this story. Britain's economic importance to China is tiny compared to the importance of the EU economy to China, and that means that Brussels, Paris, and Berlin are much more important partners when it comes to putting economic pressure on China. It's really ironic how a group of politicians who've made it their mission to try to restore Britain's rightful, or what they see as Britain's rightful place of influence and importance in the world through Brexit, have carried out these policies which have really weakened its position vis-a-vis -vis its most important ally. As far back as the 1960s, British politicians realised that joining with Europe was a way of enhancing rather than diminishing Britain's weight in international affairs, but now the country is really turning its back on that lesson, and Washington's taking note of that. American policymakers increasingly see Britain as marginal to the problems, or the solutions to the problems that Washington views as most important. And I think this development, which ought to be very concerning to politicians in London, has been kind of obscured for the last few years by the sort of rhetoric that Trump engages in. So you know, his very kind of close, you know, his chumminess with Boris Johnson, the way that he effusively 
aggressively praises Britain and Brexit. These have kind of papered over the extent to which, as far as most foreign policy professionals are concerned in the US, Britain is just not that central any longer to American interests. And I think that this is part of what's driving this real skepticism and nervousness about the Biden administration in London is the realization that this is an administration of experienced professionals who aren't going to lavish praise just for, you know, personal reasons on Boris Johnson, on Brexit, on the Brexit faction and the kind of this worldview in general, which Trump clearly saw as part, you know, very similar to his own political project. What this new administration is going to do is stick very closely to what they consider to be America's interests. And that ought to make policymakers in London nervous because there now is a real divergence between British policy, particularly when it comes to Brexit, and what America really values in its relationship with Britain. So this is a story that's going to keep on developing. There's a big moment coming up um, over the next month as the negotiations for the post-Brexit relationship between Britain and the EU come to an end. So we're going to be back here on the show talking about this in the coming months and analyzing what Brexit means, not just for America's relationship with Britain, but also um, with Europe more generally. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.